Lord is with you. Lift up your hearts. Grace and peace to you on behalf of Dean Robert Allen Hill and the Marsh Chapel community, as we are a gathered congregation, present at 735 Commonwealth Avenue in Boston, present in New England through National Public Radio, WBUR 90.9 FM, and present through internet and podcast around the globe at WBUR.org. Dean Hill sends his greetings this morning from Hampton, New Hampshire, where, the, where he is preaching at Union Chapel. And we look forward to his return to us next Sunday, August 5th. This morning, we continue our summer national preaching series, Apocalypse Then, Historical and Theological Reflections on New Testament Apocalyptic Texts. And we are pleased to welcome to our pulpit the Reverend Dr. James Christopher Walters. Reverend Dr. Walters is an Associate Professor of New Testament and Christian Origins at Boston University School of Theology and is clergy in the Churches of Christ tradition. His research interests focus on the civic context of Paul's mission. Welcome, Reverend Dr. Walters. I'm Victoria Hart Gaskell, an elder in the New England Conference of the United Methodist Church and a chapel associate here at March. Joining with me in reading the service are Mr. John Pedican, Ms. Kate Rogers, and Mr. Bill Allen, with Reverend Jennifer Quigley as our cantor for the psalm. Our prayers of the people are offered on our behalf by Ms. Sandra Cole, as Reverend Soren Hessler also offers our offertory prayer. Our musicians this morning are the Marsh Chapel Choir under the direction of our own Dr. Scott Allen Jarrett and our own Mr. Justin Thomas Blackwell is our organist. As always, we encourage your written or emailed responses, your prayerful and material support, your selection of personal forms of ministry, and as the spirit moves, your presence with us for worship. So now, beloved, rise up, now and at the invitation throughout this service, in body as you are able, but certainly in heart, in the praise and worship of God.
pray together. O God, the protector of all who trust in you, without whom nothing is strong, nothing is holy, increase and multiply upon us your mercy, that with you as our ruler and guide, we may so pass through things temporal, that we lose not the things eternal. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. During the singing of the Kyrie, we are invited to confess and to repent those things which separate us from God, from ourselves, and from our neighbor.
Beloved, if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the second book of Samuel, chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, you have just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. On the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
A lesson from St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God, with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all God's beloved in Rome, who are called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in reading Psalm 14 with the antiphon. there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise, who seek after God. They have all gone astray, they are all alike perverse. There is no one who does good, no, not one. Have they no knowledge? all the evildoers who eat at up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they shall be in great terror, for God is with the company of the righteous. You would confound the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that deliverance for Israel would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Now please rise as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of our gospel.
The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. Glory to you, O Lord. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told the disciples, gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of five barley loaves, left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and to take him by force to make him their king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. If you've been following the lectionary text with care, you're aware that considerable time has been spent over the past couple of weeks thinking about the kings of Israel, the shepherds of Israel, and the Davidic line. Would there be a king to follow in David's lineage who would finally deliver Israel? Reading the text this morning of the story of David and Bathsheba can make you wonder how it is that David was seen to be such an ideal king. But over time, he was imagined to be that figure. In that tradition, we find hopeful signs again and again in Israel's history that such a king will arise. You see from the text that was just read from John chapter 6 that that hope was expressed at the feeding of the 5,000 when they come to want and want to make Jesus king. You can imagine that that hope, that aim, is very much following along with the tradition of David being the ideal king. In this series of lessons on apocalyptic literature, or in the Apocalypse Then, as the series is called, I'm interested in featuring the Apostle Paul's apocalyptic outlook 
and trying to give insight into how Paul understood David as a king within his apocalyptic framework. You may have noticed that Romans 1, 1 to 7 was read a bit ago, outside of the lectionary text for this week. I had this text in the readings because this text is the only place in the undisputed letters of Paul where Paul mentions Jesus as son of David and emphasizes that he was in David's lineage according to the flesh. I want to flag two other items in the introduction to this sermon that come from this opening text, and then I want us to see where it leads us in the study of Paul's letter to the Romans. He says that this is the good news concerning God's Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. What I want to flag is this is the good news for Paul, and it has to do with a kind of power that Jesus has by the resurrection. Very, very often what we focus on when we think of the death of Christ is we focus on the cross itself and not on the larger event of his death and resurrection. Paul places considerable weight on the resurrection, and there's a good reason for that. It's hard to be able to place Jesus in a Davidic line if he simply goes to Jerusalem and dies at the hands of the Romans. It's hard to imagine how that fulfills the hope of Israel. To have a short ministry and to be killed on a cross. Paul's experience of Jesus was not as a disciple who followed in his footsteps, but as one who had a vision of the risen Christ. And that vision of the risen Christ brought Paul face to face with Jesus as one whom God had raised. That allowed Paul to transfer his Davidic hopes on Jesus from a Jesus who conquers the Romans in Jerusalem to a Jesus who's involved in a much larger, larger cosmic drama in an apocalyptic frame. Another way of putting this is that the death and resurrection of Jesus are not the last act. They're not the last act. They're a part of a drama that fits in a larger apocalyptic frame. Now I'm gonna stray briefly out of the letter to the Romans to read a text from 1 Corinthians that lays out this larger frame real quickly, and then I'm gonna be back in Romans to illustrate it. This text I'm about to read comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and following, where he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so will all be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Again, often when we think of the gospel or the good news, 
we think of Jesus dying for the sins of the people as an atoning sacrifice. I'm suggesting to you that Paul has a much larger drama in mind, where Christ's resurrection is a resurrection with power, which is the beginning of a conquest to overcome Adam's fall. The only other place where this Adam and Christ contrast is taken up by Paul is in the letter to the Romans. In chapter 5 of the letter to the Romans, Paul uses this Adam-Christ contrast as a means of thinking about how the death and resurrection of Christ means that the dominion of Christ has broken into the realm of Adam so that sin is able to be challenged as well as death. And you'll recall from the First Corinthians text, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Understanding this larger frame allows us to recognize why the righteousness of God in Romans is such a big issue for Paul. For Paul, God has great responsibility for this creation. Great responsibility. And the fulfillment of this larger drama that I've just described is a fulfillment whose weight rests for Paul on God. And whether or not that is fulfilled is a judgment on God's own righteousness. This is a theme that is strongly emphasized in the letter to the Romans, but one that many modern readers have missed because we've associated the righteousness of God so closely with atonement out of the Protestant tradition and the Reformation. Highlighting a couple of important texts in Romans, let me draw your attention to Romans 1, 16 and 17, two verses that have been thought to be the theme of the letter to the Romans since Martin Luther's time. Paul writes, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. You see the phrase here, in the good news or in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Uh, this is a text in which there's a considerable amount of debate about translation. The word faith in Greek pistis is used here a few times. It is becoming much more common among scholars of the Apostle Paul's letters to translate this as faithfulness rather than faith, so that that verse reads, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed through faithfulness, Christ's faithfulness, for faithfulness, human faithfulness, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faithfulness. This sense that God's righteousness is being fulfilled in the coming of Christ with the result that humans are faithful, places more weight on human responsibility than was typical out of Reformation theology. Listen to that text in relation to this next one, Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now, irrespective of the law, 
the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by His blood, effective through faith or faithfulness. He did this, God did this, to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that God Himself is righteous and that He justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, again, this emphasis on the righteousness of God is based on this larger drama where God is to be righteous in fulfilling the redemption of the larger creation. You can see that larger picture in Romans, especially in Romans 8, 18 and following. I consider that the sufferings of this present time for Paul while we're still caught between Adam and Christ, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The striking thing about this text is in a document, the letter to the Romans, where Paul is laying out this larger drama. Salvation for him is not simply the atonement of sins of individuals. It is God reclaiming creation from the dominion of sin, from the dominion of death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's why the redemption of our bodies is featured here in the way it is. This looks back to the Abraham, uh, excuse me, to the Adam uh, story in, Gen- in Genesis uh, in the fall, as you can see here, where he says, uh, the creation itself was subjected to futility. Are you thinking of a text in Genesis 3? Cursed be the ground because of you. So that not only are human beings sinful, but the creation itself was subjected to futility and groans as in labor pains, looking to share in the redemption of human beings. For Paul, the creation itself became a less hospitable place for the good. and a more hospitable place for evil. Hence, with the resurrection of Christ, Christ leads 
a campaign, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and following, in which he puts all the enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And in Paul's apocalyptic outlook, death is not the cessation of someone breathing. It's a cosmic power. In the same way that sin for Paul in the letter to the Romans is not the individual misdeed of a person, but is a cosmic power that exercises dominion and leads ultimately to death. So where's the good news in this? Well, you saw the last text I read ended with this note that we have hope because the redemption of our own bodies is tied up with the redemption of the creation and God's own righteousness is at stake in fulfilling it. For Paul, there's reason for great hope in that. That comes out most clearly in the next paragraph of Romans 8. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Uh, I don't think that's all things work together for good every minute of every day, but that this future projection that God has staked God's own righteousness on is something that we are a part of and can depend on. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If I might break in and argue with Paul, but Paul, it's been a long time. It was a long time for Israel. This period of time when all the shepherds failed Israel recounted in First and Second Kings with such brutal frankness has simply been time continuing. Paul, how do you keep confidence? He writes, What then are we to say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also give, with him give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? He's going to give a little list of possible terrestrial things that might separate us. Will hardship or distress or persecution or famineness or nakedness or peril or a sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now he's going to start listing some cosmic threats. Tapping that apocalyptic tradition again. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. This is the good news according to Paul. Paul's Davidic Messiah, Paul's son of David, is the one who makes this happen. Thanks be to God.
The Negro spiritual proclaimed, it's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. The Apostle Paul noted we should devote ourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. So let us come personally and collectively to prayer, standing, sitting, kneeling, or however the Spirit moves you. The call to prayer is hymn 473, Lead Me, Lord. Gracious and compassionate Father, Lord of love, you are most worthy of our praise. We celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. Great is your faithfulness, for although we succumb to temptation, you are slow to anger and rich in love. Because of your great love, we are not consumed by sin. We praise you, dear Lord, and thank you for your boundless love and faithful mercy. Lord of life, we testify to your goodness and unfathomable greatness this morning. You have provided the path to salvation through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And although we continue to sin time after time, you have forgiven us. Great is your faithfulness, for no matter how many times we ask for your forgiveness, you have never retracted the opportunity for redemption. We commit ourselves to you and ask for your cleansing power to help us to love and forgive. Lord of peace, we pray for those who live in locations that are parched by drought, tossed by tornadoes, broken by earthquakes, or torched by wildfires. Comfort them, Lord, and give them the strength to persevere. We pray for people whose lives are affected by oppression and war. Comfort them, Lord, and give them the strength to endure and forgive. We pray for those who are mourning the loss of loved ones and those who have been given the devastating news that nothing more can be done. Their condition is inoperable. Comfort them, Lord, and give them the strength of your presence. As we ask these things, we pray that we will recognize and cheerfully accept our role in fulfilling these requests. Help us to comfort others with comfort we ourselves have received from you. We know that you are faithful to all of your promises and loving to all of your creation. Hear our prayers, for we offer them with the faith that you are near to all who call on you in truth. 
We pray these things in the name of the one who is crowned with many crowns, Jesus Christ. Amen. And now as a community of faith, we pray together as our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. The peace of the Lord is always with you, and also with you. We give thanks for this time to be together with God and with one another. Here in the chapel, please give us the opportunity to get to know you better, and yourselves to know each other better, by signing the red books at the end of the pews on the center aisle. Pass them along the pew, and then pass them back along the pew, and thank you. The fall semester is coming up fast, and it looks to be another great academic year here at Marsh. We can all keep up by visiting our website, bu.edu chapel, where there is posted news of special events, the term book upcoming at the end of the summer with a complete fall term calendar, the bulletin for each worship service posted before the service, and the opportunity for online giving. All are very welcome in this house as the spirit moves. And now the ushers will wait upon us for our tithes, our gifts, and our offerings.
provident God, receive these gifts and consecrate them to your service. We pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit and the name of Jesus Christ, through whom we have received grace. Amen. May your faith in God's righteousness give you hope that sustains you as God finishes God's work in this world. Amen. <laughs>